I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to hear from a very dynamic lady who brings a wealth of experience and an equal amount of enthusiasm to her role as director of one of the US's most prestigious art centers. My guest today is Kathy Schumann, who is the artistic director for the Caramore Center for Music and the Arts. Kathy, I'm very grateful to you for taking time to talk to me, so welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Now, a lot of my listeners in the UK will have heard that title that you that you own and they're thinking, what is Caramore? Where is Caramore? I have to say, uh, I've had to do my research as well. I knew the name, I knew it existed, but I've been fascinated by learning the story. So perhaps you can tell us more about it. Absolutely, and you're not alone. Um, sadly, we've been around for, I think this is our 77th year uh, since the, this place was founded. Um, and there are actually many, many people who know of it but the the usual reaction i get is oh yes of course caramore and then i ask if they've been there no do they have any idea what we do there no anyway so what it is is a music venue about an hour north of new york city in westchester county um it is an estate that belonged to lucy and walter rosen who uh, bought it in the 1920s and built this incredible house on the property and there are gardens and grounds uh, and it's beautiful and they were music and art lovers and started having concerts in their living room which is now our music room it's a large large room with a stage that they built at one end Uh, and the house is decorated with incredible art um, much of it from renaissance italy Uh, they had entire rooms shipped over from (laughs) italy intact that are in this house. So it's it's really quite stunning. Uh, but they, as I said, loved music and art and started the Caramore Festival, which was known as the Caramore Festival back in the 1940s. And it's been going ever since. There are no Rosens around anymore. We own and operate the property. Uh, it was left as a as a an, an organization to continue after they were gone. Uh, so it's, it's been a real joy for me because I am a lifelong New Yorker and lived in New York and was also one of those people who care more. Yes, I'm aware of it. I don't really know where it is or what goes on there. And I had never been there actually before I started working here. So, um, it's, it's, I, am on a mission to educate and get people here that, that may be close by and don't really know what they're missing. Yeah, well, the the Rosen family in particular sounds um, fascinating and wacky at the same time. Um, it, it it seems to me that it, uh, Walter wasn't it the the instigator, Walter, yes. the founder. Walter was was you know uh, I mean in banking, but he was an amateur pianist, quite a good pianist. And Lucy Rosen uh, played the theremin. They were actually patrons of Leon Theremin, who invented the first electronic instrument. She was a concert thereminist and toured around the world playing the theremin. So, yeah, they're they're a little bit eccentric, <laughs> um, but I think 
it, it gives me hope that I, I think they would have really loved sort of when we branch out in new directions now and, and try new things and have a lot more new music than we perhaps had in recent years. I think they would have really supported that because they were in their own ways on the cutting edge. Mm. You say that you you own the building now um, and there are no more Rosens around to be benefactors to this. Did they leave any sort of foundation or financial base for, for it to be continued? Or do you have to run it all um, yourselves? I, you know, to be honest, I don't know. They've been gone for so long in the 60s. I'm not sure if any actual uh, funds were left at that point. But at this point, we are a nonprofit organization with a board of directors and an endowment. And, you know, we've, we've built up um, quite quite a huge resource um thanks thanks to many many individual contributors that we have mm. so that's the the kind of standard model in this country isn't it a board of directors uh, a foundation all sorts of fundraising which is another world for my uk listeners so maybe i can ask you a little bit of of a um your own theorizing on philanthropy in the US? I mean, what drives it? What, why do people give to arts and culture? I think because people really genuinely do love it. The people who give to Caramore are really people who come here. Uh, they live, you know, let's say within 45 minutes of Caramore. It's really their, their place and they feel very, very attached to it. Um, and they give us money, which is, which is just wonderful. I, I think Caramore's donors perhaps slightly differently than some big organizations in the city where it's become much more of a social calendar thing or a social status thing. Um, I think it's a little less so um, with our with our contributors and donors and board. They, they really have really a strong attachment to Caribor and what we do here. So it goes beyond peer pressure, doesn't it, in, in the, the local so. residents? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely in our in our case, but you know, it, it's different all over the country. Surely, uh, but you have to acknowledge you're in an area of, of the country um, that has enormous wealth around it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Well, let's yeah. um, look back a, a little earlier into your into your career, and if I may, I, I want to talk about how you uh, worked for quite a while as a representative of musicians, artist representative, manager, that sort of thing. And it must be a complete contrast to you going from selling artists in a, a very crowded marketplace to selling the the, uh, the beauties and the function of an institution like Caramel. How, how was it initially when you, you tried to sell musicians? Yeah, I mean, that's really how I got my start in the in the business uh, right out of college. I got a job with a small artist management, classical artist management, uh, small but very, very illustrious roster, you know, Murray Pariah and uh, Simon Rattle was represented in the US and all, all sorts of wonderful people. Um, but I I did various jobs in that, in that organization, but ultimately, yes, selling artists, which I also did in the UK for a while. Um, what I loved about that was really getting to know an artist very um, deeply as a person as well as an artist and really working very, very closely with them. Um, that for me was the, was the exciting part. You know, when you work for a venue, 
even an artist that you have regularly, you know, maybe you don't see them for a couple of years <laughs> uh, until they come back. So um, that was very fulfilling, really getting to know what it, what it takes for an artist to go and, and tour and play concerts, what, what kind of support they need, um, things like that. Uh, but yes, it's very, very hard to, to convince people to book your artists, even when you have the, an incredibly high level roster, because there's, there's way too many of them out there for a limited number of series and spots. And it's hard to even just be in touch with everyone. You know, um, if you're covering the whole United States, normally in the US, uh, managers divide up the country by territories so that you're not having to call people in all 50 states. Um, in Europe, it works a little differently. There, it was people were managing individual artists for sometimes all of Europe, which I found incredibly difficult <laughs> because those are all different, very different markets, and there's just no way you can be in touch with everybody. So I found it, for me personally, not uh, ultimately not the best fit because I just found that you know you can work so hard and still uh, not achieve what you're what you're trying to, which is to get work for your artist. Um, so I, I really truly feel and understand what managers go through in perhaps a way that, um, you know, sometimes maybe even some artists don't fully appreciate what, you know, if you have a good manager, what, what they're doing for you and how hard it is. Um, but uh, but I, I enjoyed it for the most part. And I, I do still miss that very, uh, day after day contact with with artists that you get to know very very well perhaps we can go a little earlier in your life if you if you don't mind and and tell us how on earth did you become interested in music is music in the family yes my father was a professional oboist and conductor um i tried several instruments as a child, not succeeding on any of them because of my lack of enthusiasm for practicing. Um, I, I like to think that perhaps I did have incredible talent, but just didn't apply myself. But anyway, I went through those quite quickly, discovered singing uh, sort of in my teens or early teens, choral singing specifically, and then just found great, great joy singing in, in choirs uh, in high school and college and, and also now to this day, um, just for fun and studied voice for a while too. But I, I knew I was never going to be a professional musician. And I graduated from college with an English degree and sort of a vague idea that maybe I would do something in music, you know, the administrative side of music, which at that point I had absolutely no idea what that was. Uh, and as I said, I, I happened to get this job at this small uh, artist management uh, and, and stayed there for almost nine years. Um, it was a little different from some artist management in that they also managed the uh, Marlborough Music Festival in Vermont, which was Rudolf Serkin's chamber music festival that was founded in the 50s. So I would go and spend summers up there, not being an artist manager at that point, but now working at this festival, a chamber music festival, where everybody was in residence for the whole summer, older musicians and younger, was really quite wonderful. And I was the sort of the same age as a lot of those young musicians who are quite prominent today. So that was a very formative experience as well. Um, and 
yeah, so I, I learned a lot, uh, a lot of different sides of the business from that one position. Um, so I, I think I'm just lucky. Had I had I gone to maybe a big agency or or some other job, perhaps I wouldn't have liked it, and I would have moved on to something else. But after that, I was pretty much hooked. Well, it sounds like you've you've made a great fist of it since since um, falling on your feet there. I'm mixing metaphors. That's not very clever of me. Uh, but it also sounds like perhaps your father was like I've been with with my kids, which is encourage them to enjoy music and try instruments. And if they if they don't want to take it to a professional level, then not push them. As you say, it's incredibly hard to um, to work for artists who are already uh, wonderfully seasoned. Um, but this business is really hard to get into as a performer and make a, a real living yeah. out of. So, what um, was quite sweet was my father back, later on, you know, sort of after I was maybe 10 years in the business, you know, he'd start running into people that would say, oh, you know, you're Kathy's father. And, and he said, you know, it's all it's all flipped now. You know, I'm, I'm hearing about you from from my musician colleagues because um, they've run into you some other way. So it was quite sweet. Now, Caramore is very diverse in its musical offerings, isn't it? Um, it's not just it the classical side that that um, drives me. So you tell me about, about how it works there. Yeah, so it did start as a classical music festival, for sure. And for, for the first decades, that's purely what it did. It had both orchestra and chamber music and opera. Um, but I would say about 25 years ago, um, jazz started appearing um, on the program. There was a jazz festival that that got presented. And then about 12 years ago, a genre that we call American Roots, uh, which is very encompasses of many different sorts of music, folk, bluegrass, um, whatever, gospel, could be anything. Um, so that had already sort of expanded before I joined about five years ago. Um, but I would say we, I've pushed it uh, a little further to brought in some world music, for lack of a better term, um, brought in a lot more music by living composers, which gets increasingly hard to classify into a genre. I guess you could say, you know, some of them come from the classical side, but right now it's a real, it's a real mix of, you know, a generation that was brought up where all these all these musics are, are kind of one. So I'm very excited by a lot of the music being written by living composers right now, particularly Americans, I will say, um, of a certain generation that are are writing just incredible stuff. And that that is probably my particular taste that I've brought to Caramore. I didn't think it was a place that was going to appreciate Stockhausen or um, certain very modernist uh, types of of music which you know don't no disrespect to them but we just we have an audience that immediately when i started talking about we're gonna have music by living composers you know just i don't i don't like atonal music they would say you know <laughs> so i've had a little bit of an uphill battle but um thankfully they've they've just embraced all of all of the music and different genres that that we've been uh bringing here and you know that doesn't mean one audience member comes to all those different genres, but um, for our community that we're sitting in, you know, I hope that we're offering a wide range that most people who who live around here can can find something that they want to come to. 
So there are two questions that that uh, spring to mind from that. The first is, did you do that because Caramon needed to expand into being a, more of a, a full time operation? I, I imagine that for a while it, it was a more limited calendar than it is now. Um, well, no, it evolved as a summer festival, um, and it still is primarily a summertime thing. Uh, we have an eight week long summer festival, which is where we do our, our biggest productions. But we do have, I would say the part that's expanded are the contests that happen now in the fall and spring, we have maybe 15 to 20 of those as well. But those all take place in that smaller music room. So you know, the maximum audience there is 190 people in the summertime, we can, we can go up to 1500 people in our in our large venue. So mm -hmm. But so we have sort of an indoor season and then an outdoor season. Um, but it's been pretty robust and full for, for many, many years now. I would say that expanding was more, well, part of it was just very personal to me. I love uh, a lot of different kinds of music and like working with them. I had previously worked at Carnegie Hall, which also had a very uh, broad spectrum of music that that it presented and and I just enjoy that and I think it's kind of um, it's much more exciting to me than just working for a chamber music festival or, or an orchestra or you know just working in one genre so maybe it was just a selfish thing for me. Um, well the, the other question that comes to my mind out of, of what you said as well is um, do you feel the need still to classify different genres so listeners attendees maybe know what they're coming to uh, unfortunately yes <laughs> um i think you do need to give them a little guidance um since we're a festival we don't really have series um but we do try to make it clear when describing uh, you know what a concert is what you know sometimes it's obvious it's a string quartet but sometimes people need a little guidance so we we what we we have difficulties with certain shows of you know what what should we classify this as mm. um so it's it can be tricky but i i think most people still feel they need that most people in the audience well let's talk about audiences because audience characteristics are something that that fascinate me um i have to say up front that i love your enthusiasm for all sorts of different music um you couldn't pay me to go to a concert of jazz and um, I, I'm not ashamed to say that anymore. I've, I've tried to hide that sort of um, uh, limitation in my own tastes all my life. But now I'm thinking, you know what? I love what I love. And um, um, a lot of people don't love classical music. A lot of people don't love orchestral music. I do. And, and that's just the way it is. But you must observe lots of characteristics about your audiences. Um, and I'm intrigued to know how they change across the genres currently and maybe how you've seen them change over the years. Yeah, I mean, at Caramore, it's, it's a really, so I, every time somebody refers to our audience, I have to always remind them that I think we have many audiences and I'm glad that you used the, the plural of that because I think we do have many different audiences here. Um, some people do, they are just keen sort of um, explorers, shall we say, and they love the place so much that, you know, these are some really hardcore people and, and I will see them sometimes three times in a weekend 
and I can't believe they're there again for something just completely different from the night they heard before. And they're just they're just so happy to to try these things out. They feel very comfortable here, you know, in this place. Maybe there's something about that that gives them a little bit of sort of security. Um, but I think we have a lot of different audiences. There's some people that come every year for our Fourth of July concert, and that's the only thing they come to. But they come to it every year. That's the one concert they want to hear. And I'm glad we have something for those people. Um, and similarly, some people probably only come to our jazz concerts and nothing else. So um, there's crossover, and then there's people that just come to what they what they like. Um, I can't. I'm not sure I could really distinguish them. I think I was hoping when I brought in some of the uh, some of the new music in particular, which if you put it on in New York City, will draw a really we would say here, you know, more of a downtown crowd. Um, uh, we don't have a downtown in Katona, New York, um, but actually a lot of New Yorkers have moved out of the city even before the pandemic or, you know, they're having families and they're, they're moving out. And I kind of thought, you know, we're going to lure a bunch of these people that are missing the fact that they don't live in Brooklyn anymore and they're going to come to some of these very cool things that I'm putting on. I don't think they know that we're doing it yet. <laughs> So I'm not sure we've gotten to them, but I've been heartened by the fact that our other audiences who have come, maybe a chamber music person will come and hear the Kronos Quartet for the first time. Um, and they've just absolutely loved it. I was sort of nervous, like maybe they're, they're very traditional and they're not going to be interested. So our existing audience has sort of come with us. Um, I, I'm keen to sort of engage a lot of people that even though they may live within 20 minutes of us, don't really know that we're the breadth of what we're doing here. And on a yeah. more sort of global scale, do you have any thoughts between audiences in the US and uh, across the Atlantic in, in Europe? Do you find them more conservative here? You know, it's really hard to generalize. I think that would be what most people would say. And certainly mm. there are many, many conservative audiences. Um, but I think it's a little, it, it's, it's too much of a generalization. And I've been to too many concerts where I've seen people get really excited about new things to really, um, I, I'm actually, I'm more critical of the organizations that don't take a few more risks and and try to move move people towards some some different things. You know, a lot of them will just say, we, we can't program that, you know, our our audience won't like that, they're too conservative. Well, that will keep you in the same place forever, pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I see uh, that. And uh, in my yeah. own programming, uh, you have to recognize you have a lot of constituents to to um, try and satisfy. And it's always a challenge to be daring on the one hand and recognize that you only have so many events, dates that you um, are seeking product for in in the course terms yeah. like that um yeah you have to you have to balance things quite carefully i think you know make a program that gives somebody something that they really they know they love and then pair it with something else it, it seems simple but you can you can go far by by yeah just doing doing it in a really thoughtful careful way and not and do you think as well that composers today are writing more for the audience than they were 40 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, 
I do not think they're writing for the audience. I think they're writing for themselves as they ever have been. Um, but for whatever reason, maybe it's more approachable to some some people. I don't know. I don't, I don't think they're writing for the audience. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think composers have ever yeah. written for the audience. Um, I, perhaps the divide between composers and audience is a little uh, less. Um, you know, I frequently, a lot of the composers that I love and I'm, I'm talking about, I will see at concerts a lot. They are, they are active concert goers in addition to composers. They're not sitting off in a, in a, a room sort of separated from the world. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's very exciting what's happening in, in new music today, at least, at least in this country. I'm not as familiar with what's going on in Europe right now. You didn't quite answer that the way I was expecting you to, and that's, that's great. I kind of disagree with you. Um, there are more of everything now. There are more performers, there are more conductors, there are more composers. And the business is so saturated that maybe I didn't express it properly when I said that they are writing for the audience, but maybe they're, they're wanting to be heard more. When someone like Stockhausen was writing, I, I always get the feeling that he was part of a hierarchy and, a, a, sorry, a continuum, I should have said, of um, music theorists and composers who thought they knew best. And I've never been able to program stuff. I've never enjoyed Stockhausen, I've got to be quite honest. Yeah, I, I think another another point that I wanted to make with that is a lot of these um, composers now are also performers. You know, there's a lot of composer performers now. So they are um, writing pieces for themselves or their groups that they've started. Or, you know, I think that's been a trend the last 20, 30 years that was very different from something before that. And that's helped that they're they're on stage, too, you know, sometimes. Yes, I, I have to say I've seen that, and um, uh, Steve Mackey has been uh, one in particular that I've, I've worked with and enjoyed. Uh, okay, so this is all very fascinating, but I, I want to ask you which area of your work, which has been so incredibly diverse, we've only touched on part of it really, but which of it do you think has been, first of all, most productive and secondly, most personally satisfying? Well, of course, my current job, I will say right now, is the most personally satisfying. Um, but all of my work on the presenting side, I would say, including the, the many years at Carnegie Hall that I spent, that was really such a privilege to, to work at an institution like that, that you have absolutely the best artists from around the world passing through every year, you know, 150 concerts a year that we presented and, you know, I mean, I just heard, you know, over probably a hundred concerts a year at Carnegie, and that was just, um, yeah, you can't, you can't beat that. It was, it was an absolutely wonderful, great place to work and, and great place to experience so much music. Um, I think now going off and being in a position of really the decision making um, at Terramore, where I can really. Um, you know, I, I was involved in decision making at Carnegie Hall, but now, you know, I'm the artistic director. So that's that's given me um, just a lot of satisfaction. I, I sometimes compare it to, I love to cook, I'm a home cook. 
um, you know, when you make dinner for a group of friends and you really work hard on it and you've, you've served this dinner to your friends and they, they eat your food and, and everybody's having a great time and they, they tell you how wonderful the dinner was. And, you know, that's, that's kind of my happy place. And I, I kind of feel like that when I'm at a concert that, that I've programmed at, at Caramore and, and I look around and I see people enjoying something they never heard before. And, and one of the things I love to, it's such a small place and people know who I am. So they'll come up to me and say, thank you so much for bringing that artist or I never heard that. And what's, what's happening next year. And, and they're just, I, I love being really quite engaged with, with seeing how people experience it all. So that's, it's an incredible place of privilege. Uh, and I feel very, very lucky to be doing it. Well, I was saving up the questioning about cooking for for a little later, but uh, you, you've brought it in yourself. So you're obviously very enthusiastic about it. Uh, and do you find that uh, things like cooking and I know you like traveling and um, other things like that, other pastimes, um, are they where you need to go? Because this must be a stressful job. You have huge responsibilities. Yeah, they they all they all are fun to they're all kind of related in a way to me. I don't know. It's all about kind of uh, exploring and and not getting caught in a rut. <laughs> and and believe me, I it's I sometimes have to argue with myself about, you know, you, you can come out of uh, Carnegie Hall years of working there and feeling like I know the entire spectrum of artists, uh, you know, who's who's big, who's up and coming, who's great. And then, you know, you can be outdated within one year if you haven't kept up. So I do try to um, go to lots of concerts and, and hear things that I don't know and that I haven't heard. And that's the same when I travel. Um, it's really about right, exploring a new place. And even with my cooking, I, I mean, there's, there's some dishes I love to make over and over again, but it's, it's so exciting to cook something new. Um, and I've just been amazed myself about, you know, when I worked in the U.S. to begin with, then I lived in Europe for several years. And, you know, after working and living in New York and thinking like, well, this is the center of the universe and I know every artist and then going over to the to Europe and nobody had ever heard of half of these people. And there were all these artists that I never heard of and sort of a rude awakening there. And then coming back, same thing in reverse. Now I was all all up on all the European scene, and I came back to the U.S. and was kind of, how come these artists aren't touring here? Why aren't they here? So um, that's that's just something that I, for my own uh, pleasure, but also I just think it's important that that music not be a museum, um, that that it's an ever living, growing, changing organism, um, and and unfortunately, I think some there are still a contingent of people that feel that it's a it's a museum to be preserved of you know 19th century music and um, we mustn't we mustn't disturb it well that brings me very conveniently to my last serious question and that's to do with the future of, of live performance you've you've partially answered it I think uh, COVID notwithstanding do you see major changes in the way we um, absorb live performances over the next 20 years or so? I really hope not. I just came actually from a three-day conference of ISPA, the International Society for the Performing Arts, which is a long, long-standing organization of people working in this field from around the country. And this was, of course, the topic 
that everybody was addressing, you know, what's, what are the changes happening to our industry and how is, how is video and digital all gonna, gonna change things? And obviously it will, it will be here. I still think there's absolutely nothing like going to a live concert. And I, I think concerts more than other things like dance or maybe even opera are really best experienced live. They don't lend themselves so well to a watching on the screen. Um, so I think there will always be live music. Here at Caramore, we did do live streaming for about a year during the, the first part of the pandemic while we couldn't have live audiences. And they were absolutely great for keeping our, our sort of base audience engaged, but people did get tired of them uh, once things started opening up. And I think for us, we will not pursue sort of live streaming or, or anything mm -hmm. like that again. We're, we're really about the experience of being here in this very special environment and hearing live music, but it's not going to go away. There, there will be, there will be people creating all sorts of wonderful things online. Well, I think what you've just said is very encouraging. Actually, I think there'll always be a place for um, online performances, the appreciation of that, whatever. But it's ultimately there as a goal to encourage people to go and experience it in person with other human beings yeah. in a in a yeah. in the same space. And certainly, yeah, the fact that you know, I mean, I live in New York City, so I I have all this stuff at my back door. But when you think about people that live places where they don't have access to any of this, that there the the streaming has really been, I think, a godsend. And you know, for them to be able to watch the Met Opera or the Berlin Philharmonic or the Takash String Quartet, whatever. I mean, that's, that's wonderful, I think. So I'm not going to diss it. I personally will be at the live concerts. I'll be there with you. Okay, now a last question that I always ask my guests, and um, I hope you enjoyed this. But when you're no longer with us, or with everybody else, what's the one thing you want to be most cherished for, remembered for? Oh, what a difficult question. How can you ask that? Um, I don't think it's going to be professional. I think it's going to be that, um, gosh, that that I was that I was a good friend. That I was a good friend to my to the people around me, um, and perhaps perhaps opened up. This will veer slightly into the professional perhaps opened uh, up their eyes to something that they didn't know about already, which I, so I would say it, even with my friends, I'm, I'm the one who's always, you know, have you listened to this? Have you heard this pianist? Have you listened to this artist? Have you seen that film? Have you tried this dish? You know, and, and they're all kind of like, where, where do you get the time? I don't know. It's, well, I think that's a I lovely answer. Say. I think that's perfect. Yeah. There you go. Well, Kathy, I can't thank you enough. So, Kathy Schumann, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Edgar. Kathy Schumann, director of the Caramore Art Center in New York. Next time, my guest will be Geoffrey Sharkey, the principal of the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland in Glasgow, a school with a growing international reputation 
and one which consistently ranks within the world's top 10 performing arts institutions. It's also the only place in Europe where you can study all of the performing arts on one campus. I'm Andrew Constantine and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point. <laughs>